We'll come now this morning to our fourth message in our mini-series on union with Christ. Union with Christ. I want to begin by referencing a chapter in Nancy Piercy's 2004 book, Total Truth. The chapter is entitled, When America Met Christianity, Guess Who Won? When America Met Christianity, Guess Who Won? In it, she documents political ideas that gave birth to our nation were also seen to bleed over into the spiritual or ecclesiastical sphere as well. Ideas that were swirling at that time, such as individualism, democratic leadership, or breaking with the tradition of the path to chart a new course, were all in the air in the 18th century. These ideas, as we know, contributed to the formation of the United States over traditional forms of monarchical rule. We didn't have a king. We were charting a new course. However, as these ideas permeated throughout society over the years, they also began to shape the way that people viewed religion and viewed church affiliation. The revivalism of the first and second great awakenings pushed these ideas further into the American psyche. And as a result, the way that people approached their faith and church changed. The ideas that had their influence on Americans in those early decades were inherently individualistic. The individual was called to step out away from the group and away from tradition and to uh, make a decision for themselves. These streams were also anti-intellectual and it caused people to reject creeds and catechisms that had been handed down for centuries and instead to chart a new course with simply themselves and their Bibles alone. Now these ideas had many effects upon the Christianity of Americans, but one of them has been the way in which believers have viewed the relationship to the church. And these ways that it shaped their views of the church have continued down to the present they viewed the church as a collection of individuals who happened to believe the same thing instead of an organic spiritual community brought together by the Lord. They desired sermons that would move them more than sermons that would teach them. They looked for preachers who addressed felt needs instead of preachers who expounded scripture. Pastors became quasi-celebrities, relying on their presence and charisma to move crowds rather than on their ability to expound the word. As a whole, people began to view church as simply a part of their lives rather than themselves as a part of the church's life. Let me say that again. 
As a whole, people began to view church as simply just a part of their lives rather than seeing themselves as a part of the church's life. As I said, these same trends are with us today in evangelicalism. Piercy in her book mentions a poll of evangelicals of whom 54% said to be alone and to meditate was more important than to worship with others. Once again, we see that people view church as part of their self-constructed life instead of themselves as part of the church that Christ has constructed. Now, for the last three weeks, we've been covering an important but often neglected topic of Scripture, and that is the believer's union with Christ. We first looked at how our union with Christ affects our identity, how we view ourselves, seeing that we are now adopted children of God as we are united to Christ. But then we looked at how our union with Christ is what caused our salvation, that it brought about our, the salvation that we enjoy because we were united to Christ. We were buried with him, we died with him, we were buried with him, and we were raised with him. And then last week, we looked at how those realities, those salvation realities from our union with Christ affects our everyday Christian lives. The ways that we live and, and how we live out the Christian life in our communion with God, in our fighting of sin, all of these things are affected by our union with Jesus. So today I want us to look at how union with Christ shapes our relationship to the church our relationship to the church. But before we launch into that, let's bow together asking the Lord's assistance this morning. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to open your word, to know your word, to have it in our language. And we ask now that you would please be with us in this time. Please illumine our minds. Please humble our hearts. Enable us to be taught by the Spirit from your word. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to show you how union with Christ helps us to see seven realities of our relationship to the church. Seven realities of our relationship to the church. And so first, because you are united to Christ, everything we've talked about the last three weeks, because you've been united to Christ, number one, your submission to Christ is fundamental. Your submission to Christ is fundamental. When we became a Christian, did we follow him? Yes. Did we believe in him? Yes. Did we receive him? Yes. But we also submitted to him. We submitted to him. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be bouncing around to different passages this morning as we thread this topic of union with Christ and the church. In the midst of the magnificent hymn extolling the unparalleled greatness of Jesus, Paul emphatically states what Jesus' relationship to the church is. Look with me at verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. It says simply, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. The relationship 
of the head to the body is found throughout the New Testament. This illustration or this analogy. And it communicates the close relationship that Christ has with his people. It also communicates authority and hierarchy. Jesus is the head and he has authority over us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So Jesus is the head of his body, the church, and we all as believers in Christ are individually members of that body. We cannot escape that reality. To come, to become a Christian, we did not simply add Jesus to our lives as an accessory. We have not just gotten religious and squared our life away. We have become a member of the body of Christ. And this means, friends, that Jesus is our head. And as our head, we're to do two things in relationship to him. Turn with me first to Ephesians, back two books to Ephesians chapter 4. The first reality that if Jesus is our head, what does that mean for us? It means, number one, that we are to grow into Christ. We are to grow into Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the connection that Paul makes? Because Jesus is our head, we're to be growing up into that head. We're to be growing up into Christ. We're to be maturing into him. It's to change our hearts and our behavior. And he designed that the church us, the gathered members of Christ, would, would so work in each other's lives as to produce that maturity. It's we're speaking the truth in love to one another. We are equipped to build itself up in love. God set it up so that the church could do this work. But the second thing we do as with Christ as our head, first is we grow up into Christ. Secondly, is that we submit to him as our head. Go to Ephesians 5. A chapter later, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24, in his instructions to the wife in the Christian home, we also have some statements about the relationship of the church to Christ. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here in the midst of these instructions to the Christian wife, Paul makes it clear that the church is to be submitting to Christ because Christ is our head. So that means real practically, friends, that here at Foothill Bible Church, Jesus Christ is the head of our church. This church belongs to him. This is not my church. This is not the elders' church. This isn't even the congregation's church. This is Jesus' church. 
He is the one that sets the agenda. He's the one that rules over us through his word. This is how Jesus exerts his authority over his church is through his word. And so insofar as a church is following the scriptures, that church is submitted to Christ. And if a church fails to follow the Bible, then the church fails to submit to Jesus. It's that simple. And so because we are united to Christ, he is our head, and thus we see that our submission to him, to him as our head is fundamental. It's basic to what it means to be a Christian. But the second reality that union with Christ helps us to see is that number two, your unity with Christians is deep. Your unity with Christians is deep. Why don't you turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's the night that he was betrayed before the cross. He's just finished teaching his disciples, giving them his final discourse. And he turns in chapter 17 to pray. And here we hear of Jesus' desire for his disciples and not just those that were there that night, but those of us that came after the disciples. Look at verse 20, John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Friends, there is so much rich theology packed in these verses we don't have time to dive into, but the point I want you to see here is that here Jesus is praying that there would be unity, oneness amongst his people that his people would be called together and that there would be a rich unity, a unity that reflects the unity of the Trinity. That's how close, that's how unified the church is to be. Just as the Father and the Son are unified together, so we too are to be unified together. This is both a, a positional and a practical. Positionally, we are unified in Christ, whether we like it or not. Practically, we've got to fight for that and work for that, don't we? To see that unity plays out. We see this unity also played out in 1 Corinthians 12. Flip over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 12 and 13. Paul, further describing this head and body reality between Christ and his church, he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For just 
as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here we get the clear teaching that all believers are a part of the body of Christ. We are all individually members of that body. Even though there is great diversity, there is great differences between all of us, uh, not just even in this room, but you start talking about the, the universal church of those that live around the globe and those that have lived throughout past centuries, there is great diversity and yet we are all one in Christ. Now verse 12, Jesus, or Paul rather, says um, that there's one body. He, he draw, draws out this analogy and then he ends with, so it is with Christ. You don't expect it to say, so it is with the church. Just as the, the body has many members and yet it's one body, so it is with the church that there's many members but one body. But he says, so it is with Christ. What that teaches us, yet again, is the union that Christ has with his people. You can interchange church and Christ and still be talking about the same thing because we are the body of Christ. Now, how did we enter this body? How did we become part of the body of Christ? Paul says in verse 13 that it's in one spirit we are all baptized into the body. This is what theologically we know as the baptism of the spirit. The baptism of the spirit comes that that doctrine comes from this verse. Now in some circles, spirit baptism is taught as an experience that Christians are supposed to seek after they've been saved as part of a further deepening of their Christian walk. You might be a Christian, but you really need spirit baptism. And so you need to pray for that. Let me just say that I, the Bible does not teach that. Spirit baptism is a one-time event that takes place at the beginning of the Christian life and it's something that happens through the Spirit whether we feel it or not. Spirit baptism is universal for all Christians. There is no Christian who has not experienced the baptism of the Spirit. It's a one-time event. It's not repeated. H.B. Charles Jr. defines spirit baptism this way. That is definition was helpful. He said, spirit baptism is a non-experiential, redemptive work of God, the Holy Spirit, in which we are placed into the body of Christ the moment we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's a momentary, it's a one-time event that happens at our conversion. So, all of us who know Jesus have been baptized in this, by the Spirit into the body of Christ. That is a a theological objective fact this morning. We need to realize that this unity did not come cheap. This unity came at the cost of Jesus' blood. And we don't have time to uh, turn there this morning, but uh, write down Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul there describes that in order for Jews and Gentiles to be able to be brought together into what he calls one new man, it took the blood of Christ. For you and I to, to be totally unified and baptized in the spirit, in the body of Christ, it took the shedding of the blood of Christ for us who were far off to be brought near and for us to be unified together particularly Jews and Gentiles, but all peoples of all walks of life, of all cultures, all languages, all nations to be brought together in Jesus. It took the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Friends, we cannot forget the union that we have with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ particularly those who are with us in the local fellowship. Yes, there is a union that we have with believers all over the world, and we praise God for that. If you've ever traveled internationally and you've met believers, uh, even that you're talking to through a translator, you sense a, a, a communion and a union with them that is so special because of what we have through Jesus. But it's particularly worked out in the day-to-day, week-to-week, with those that we fellowship with here together. We've entered into covenant community The church was not an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. God didn't say, oh, I'm going to make a bunch of Christians and save them. And then, ah, I guess they can get together. Sure, yeah, you know. Why don't you, oh, sure, why don't you open the Bible and get together? And no, the church, the community of the saints was intentional. Part of God's plan from the beginning. And this should change the way we think about fellow Christians in the church. We don't evaluate each other the way that the world evaluates one another. In the church, we don't just hang out with the people that we like or have similar interests as us. We're not choosing social groups simply because of hobbies or similar stage of life or similar social class. What brings us together? What binds us together? It's our union with Christ. It's the fact that we're united to Jesus, that he shed his blood so that we could be united to the people that we're sitting next to we fellowship with and this is what makes the community we have in the church so revolutionary but even though we have this union in principle our unity in practice is something that must be worked for as I alluded to earlier it requires blood sweat and tears to maintain and that's why Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 4 that we must strive be eager to strive for the unity that we have in the spirit is something that we must work at. I ask you, are you eager to work at unity here at Foot of Bible Church? Are you striving to maintain the unity that you have in your small group? Are you striving to maintain the unity that you have with other people in this fellowship? Or do you stay sequestered in comfortable social groups of people that you know? Maybe thinking other thoughts about people in other groups. Friends, these things ought not to be so. We have an equal standing before Christ. And so union with Christ helps us to see that union is deep with other believers and we need to work to maintain it. But the third reality that union with Christ reveals that I want to show you this morning is that your presence at church is vital. Because we're united to Christ, your presence at church is vital. In one sense, this principle is just a consequence of the previous one. If we have essential unity with one another through Christ, if we are all members of the body of Christ, then assembling together is important. We're not just card-carrying members of a religious organization, but we're part of the assembled body of Christ. And it's vital and necessary that we meet together in person, face to face. The apostles who wrote great letters to their churches and to other Christians recognized that for as much as as pen and ink is good, face to face is better. God designed us for that. And that's what the community in the church is supposed to be. And this is why the author of Hebrews gives us the exhortation in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse could not be more clear that God's intention for Christians is that we meet together. That we meet together face to face and we not neglect that. To neglect it is wrong and is a sin. Now, of course, there are health conditions, life circumstances that prohibit people from being able to attend in per person. And in those situations, we seek to bring the ministry to them since they cannot come to us. But I believe this verse in Hebrews addresses another category of people. They are those who do not make a habit to attend regularly even though they are physically able to do so. The issue is not one-off absences with vacations and whatnot. The problem that Hebrews seeks to address is those who make a habit of neglecting the fellowship of the gathered church. Now, there have always been temptations and distractions for weekend activities. That is not new. Whether it's a day at the beach, a baseball or soccer game, or a day with family or whatever else, it can crowd out fellowship on the Lord's Day. And again, those sorts of temptations and issues have always been there, drawing, attempting Christians to neglect the fellowship on a regular basis. But there's another category of those who have become, I would say, casualty of the COVID pandemic. In the spring of 2020, we all live streamed church. I preached from this pulpit to a camera that was back in the middle of the aisle and you all watched from home. But then we began meeting again and we're gathering face to face again because of the importance of it. But there are folks all across this nation and I would say probably all over the world who still remain at home and some have decided to never return to in-person gatherings. Friends, I think the New Testament is clear that for as much as live stream church for us in a temporary basis was necessary, it was never intended to be a substitute for what the Lord has commanded us to do, and that is to meet together in person. Live stream services may enable us to stay up to date on the sermon series when we're home ill one week, but it's not a substitute for meeting together. And do you see how our union with Christ changes our perspective of this? We're united together with each other in Christ. There's a community that we have together. And so the question is, how can one claim to be part of the body of Christ and yet never spend time with other members of the body? How can a body function together when some of its members aren't present willingly and voluntarily? How can someone be a member of the body of Christ and yet keep themselves sequestered from that body? How can someone say they love Christ and yet disre have disregard for Christ's bride? Now I say again, it is true that someone can have a health condition that keeps them from attending. 
The Lord knows this and these folks are not in any sin for not being able to attend with us. But those who are able to attend and have chosen not to, the scriptures are clear that they have done exactly what the Bible says not to do and that is making a habit of not meeting with the saints. There's a difference between living with a health condition and living in fear. Now, it's not my intention here to simply step on toes or to just offend people needlessly. It is my goal to simply take the word of God and if by his will confront those who need to hear his word. And I pray that God would call his children across our nation who are wayward and are neglecting the fellowship, that God would call them back into face-to-face, in-person fellowship because this is what is needed for them and it is what is needed for all of us who are missing them. So, I believe our union with Christ reveals that our presence at church is vital. Let's look fourthly. The union with Christ reveals that your ministry to the church is needed. Your ministry to the church is needed. 1 Corinthians 12. We already saw that we're members of the body of Christ. And one of the benefits and dynamics of this is that each of us has been gifted by Christ through the Spirit. And we call these spiritual gifts. Now, we don't have time to do a full-bore study and explanation of spiritual gifts in the Bible. But I want you to understand a few things from the, this passage, 1 Corinthians 12, about spiritual gifts. So let's look at four truths on spiritual gifts to hang your hat on this morning. The first is that you have a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one has received a gift. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We're a part of the body of Christ, Therefore, we've been given gifts by the Spirit. Therefore, we're to use them. It's as simple as that. We have a gift, you have a gift, and you are to use it in the context of the church. The second truth is not only do you have a gift, but your gift is from God. Your gift is from God. For the 1 Corinthians 12 the Verse 4 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Verse 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. These verses could not be more clear that the gifts that we have have been given to us by God. He is him that empowers us. He empowers you to have a gift that you contribute to the church. These are spiritual gifts, not simply natural talents. They may accord with your natural talents. They may go alongside your natural talents, but they themselves are not simply 
natural talents. And so because these gifts are given to us by God, that's why Paul says, and what I read in Romans 12, that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We think with sober judgment because we realize that what we have and the abilities that we have and the gifts that we have are not because of us, it's because of God. And therefore we have a stewardship to use them for his glory and for his purposes. We need to be humbled by the fact that God has gifted us. And so thirdly, your gift is important. Your gift is important and needed. Every gift is needed. No one can say that their gift is unimportant or unneeded. In verses 14 to 20, don't have time to read those verses, but he basically says no one can say, yeah, I'm no longer needed because I'm this part of the body. No, we all have a part to play. Just because you aren't gifted in the ways that somebody else is gifted doesn't mean that you're not needed. Every member of Foothill Bible Church is needed. You have something to contribute to his church. God in his providence made you who you are, gave you the gift that he gave you so that you might serve the church. We can't envy the gift of others, but that's grumbling against the providence of God. He's the one that is distributed. He's the one that's given to us. And we're to deploy it for the good of the church and the glory of God. And that brings us to the fourth truth I want you to see about spiritual gifts this morning, and that is your gift is not for you. Your gift is not for you. Verse seven again. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. In chapter 14, verse 26, he says that these gifts are for the purpose, uh, all things are to be done for building up. And we saw earlier in Ephesians 4 that we're to be building each other up into maturity in Christ. Friends, the reason God has given you a gift is so that the church might be built up. The maturity of the church depends upon us serving one another. If we all keep to ourselves and the body does not function as it's supposed to. Now, Christians can get hung up all the time about, I don't know my spiritual gift, and so they sit in the corner and just try to not do anything because they're waiting to figure out their spiritual gift. And let me encourage you this morning to don't allow that to paralyze you, but instead to step out and to serve, to give of yourself, to sacrifice of your time and energies for the good of the body of Christ. We all are to be serving in some capacity. And right now at the start of our ministry year, the fall coming on is the best time to get plugged in somewhere, serving and giving of your time and energy that the body of Christ might be built up. And there's lots of opportunities around here. Some are formal and official, others informal and unofficial, but they're all ministries of service. One such ministry that I wanna highlight this morning is our nursery and our children's ministry. We have been blessed with God with many young children here at the church. It is a sign of great health. We praise God for these children. Babies seem to be added every month, which is great. And yet, we currently have a shortfall in nursery workers. We need people, and particularly ladies, you're tapping on your shoulder this morning, to watch the children during our services on Sunday. And so I want to particularly exhort you to consider serving in our nursery ministry. And indeed, some of you have served your time in terms of raising your own children. Or maybe they're older and almost out of the house, or maybe they are out of the house. 
but you're in a position to still be able to watch the children invest in the next generation. And let me also say that it is a wonderful opportunity for Titus II ministry as you serve alongside one another, older women and younger women serving together and being able to encourage one another as you talk of the things of the Lord. And so I ask you to please pray about it and consider if God might have you to serve in this vital ministry as we seek to build families here at Foothill. All of us have a part to play. Your ministry is needed. Where is it? Think about it and pray about it. Fifthly, the fifth reality that is revealed by our union with Christ as it relates to our view of the church is that valuing other gifts is necessary. Your valuing of others' giftedness is necessary. Paul made it clear that we're not all gifted the same way. He says if every, if every uh, part of the body was an eye, what good is that? We, we need, just like our physical bodies need diversity of members, so the body of Christ needs diversity of members. And so no one can say, oh, that gift isn't needed. No, they're all needed. And the diversity, the differences that we find within the church can be cause for the division, but Paul says there's to be no division. Instead, there's to be unity. Why? Because we're united to Christ. We are all in this together. We are all united to Jesus. Diversity shouldn't create division. It should be cause for celebration. Just as on a football team, you've got a lineman, you've got a quarterback, you've got a receiver. They all serve different roles, but they're all vitally important for the game. They're all vitally important to get the touchdown. The same is true in the church. We all have different roles to play, but they're all vitally important. Many different gifts and roles, but we all play a certain part. Sixthly, this morning, we, our union with Christ also teaches us that your sin against other church members is serious. Because we're united to Christ, our sin against other church members is serious. I don't know, is this something you've, you've thought about? All sin is serious, right? But there's something about our sin against other, other members of the body of Christ that is particularly egregious. First, I want you to see from 1 Corinthians 6. If you're already in 1 Corinthians, turn back to verse, or chapter 6. Here is the context of sexual immorality of particularly men that were seeing prostitutes and thinking that it was, it was okay to be uh, Christians and, and doing such a thing. And notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 6 verse 15 through 17. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There it is again, union with Christ in the body of Christ, we're united together. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But look at this, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Friends, there's a union with Christ, becomes one spirit with Christ, that when we sin, we bring Christ into that sin. This is spoken of in a, in a, in a general sense. Acts 9, we're not gonna, uh, 
Paul is on his way to persecute Christians and it says, Acts chapter 9 says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now was Saul, who later got his name changed to Paul, was he actually seeking to put Jesus in prison? No, he was pursuing Christians. But Jesus Christ from heaven views the persecution of his people as the same as persecuting himself. But then we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that to sin against another believer is to sin against Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in the context of talking about food offered to idols, He says that we need to consider the faith of our weaker brother. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Friends, to sin against another believer in the body of Christ is to sin against Christ himself because Jesus is united to us. And so I ask you, do you take your sin against other brothers and sisters in Christ seriously? And this hits home really in the context of our own homes. With a believing spouse, with children. Do you recognize that the ways that we sin with our words and our actions, there are egregious offenses against the Lord himself. All sin is serious. But sin against a member of the body of Christ is especially egregious. We need to guard against sinning against one another. Because of this, we need to make sure that our feet don't go down those paths, guarding ourselves. And when we do sin, we need to confess it openly and honestly. We need to repent of it, making a 180, changing our mind, changing our behavior. We need to keep short accounts, making sure that we don't go on building offense after offense after offense and allowing that to stack up Instead, we need to keep short accounts confessing our sin and walking in the gospel with one another. And then we need to forgive as God has forgiven us. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Believer, Jesus forgave you in Christ. Therefore, you need to forgive those who offend you and seek that forgiveness. Finally this morning, the seventh and final reality that union with Christ reveals in our relationship with the church is that your fellowship around the Lord's table is rich. Because you are united to Christ, your fellowship around the Lord's table is rich. When we gather to take those elements together, it is not just a throwaway ritual that we do and we move on. This is something that symbolizes a deep union and fellowship that we have through Christ. It's a meal that reinforces that union and our unity with one another. We're in 1 Corinthians, turn to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 16. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, 
We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Do you see this connection between the unity that we have in Christ and the elements that we participate in? There's theoretically one cup. For hygienic reasons, we don't drink out of one cup, but the principle is still there. There is one cup that we are all drinking from, and that is, represents the blood of Christ. And there was one bread that we break, and that represents the one body of Christ. And yet, as we turn to chapter 11, the Corinthians were coming together for this meal, and rather than emphasizing their unity, they were showing their division. The, the rich were gathering in ahead of time and they were eating up their feasts so that when the poor people came they had nothing to eat and the class divisions were were pronounced and there was not unity within that church and Paul writes to exhort them to say listen this is not the way that you're to operate especially when you come to celebrate the Lord's table unity is to be the emphasis around the Lord's table which is why he exhorts them in verse 27 he says whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord let a person examine himself then so eat so uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself this is why Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Friends, the reason that some were died when they came to eat the Lord's table is because they were carrying divisions into that meal. And that meal is what we show to ourselves and to the world that we are one in Christ. And so we cannot come divided. We cannot come to that meal with still unresolved conflict with other people in our homes, other people in the body of Christ. We must come to that meal with those divisions reconciled. Because if we don't, then we, we drink and we take of that in an unworthy manner. The Lord takes our unity seriously. We need to as well. And so it should cause us to examine ourselves and examine our relationships and examine whether we have not just sin that we've done personally, but is there sin between us and another brother or sister in Christ? Next week, we're gonna be taking of communion together at the Lord's table. And so I encourage you to prepare for that this week. Think about the relationships that you have in your home and in the body of Christ. Is there any grudges that you need to confess? Is there any sinful, judgmental behavior that you need to repent of? Are there any that you've shown favoritism towards, neglecting some? I pray that the Lord would reveal those things and enable us to repent, to not hold on to them in our pride, but to confess them and repent them and find forgiveness because of what we're celebrating, the blood of Jesus that was shed so that we could be one. Well, friends, I end this morning where we began. And that is that the view of church today and the body of Christ that's found in the church is very anemic in the evangelical church in our country. There may be, as we talked about, historical reasons for this. There may be personal reasons for it. But whatever the reasons, a failure to value the church is a failure to grasp the union that we have in Christ. And when we understand what we have in Jesus, the fact that we are all unified together, then it changes how we view our connection to one another. And it changes how we live out as a church in this world. 
I pray that Foothill Bible Church, we would continue to go deep in our unity and recognize that. May we do the hard work to see that our unity is maintained. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your mercy as we recognize that unity is something that Christ purchased and yet it's also something that we must strive to maintain. And there are so many things in our own hearts, our own lives, our own homes that can keep us from this unity. Oh, Father, I pray that you would heal the divisions, that you would enable the, us to confess our sin to one another, that we'd recognize where we have erred, where we have sinned against a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And may we seek to forgive. May we seek to heal. And may we truly be one as you, Father, Son, and Spirit are one. That you may receive the glory in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.